Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? What is Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? Dancing with the Black Elephant? From Yeshiva University, this is Andrew Boyarski, and you are listening to Dancing with the Black Elephant. So I'm here at the Risk Management Society Conference uh, 2018 here in San Antonio, and we're out here in the open lounge, so you may hear some background noise. With that in mind, I am delighted to have two uh, very special guests on the podcast for today. They are Subhagya Parija, who is currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Risk Officer at the New York Power Authority. It is the largest publicly owned power utility in the United States. Parija has a diverse experience in risk management involving working in different industries such as retail and energy, as well as in a set of large and small companies during a course of more than two decades. Prior to accepting the current position, Parija was in a leadership role in risk management at Walmart's international division. He earned his master's degree in economics from the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India uh, and completed his MBA with a concentration in finance and information systems from the Kelly School of Business, Indiana University. Parija was a member of the ERM committee at RIMS from 2008 through 2011, and he currently serves on the board of RIMS. We also have with us Chris Mandel, who is a Senior Vice President of Strategic Solutions at Sedgwick Insurance. In 2016, Chris was appointed Director of the Sedgwick Institute in an interdisciplinary community of thought leaders dedicated to elevating the dialogue around issues affecting the risk and benefits industry. Mr. Mandel pioneered the development of integrated risk management at USAA, which was recognized as a leader in ERM by Standard & Poor's. Throughout his career, he has held leadership roles at Liberty Mutual, Marsh, Verizon, American National Red Cross, PepsiCo, as well as numerous leadership positions within the Risk and Insurance Management Society, also known as RIMS. Mr. Mandel is a risk innovator and a contributor for Risk and Insurance Magazine, was named as Risk Manager of the Year in 2004 by Business Insurance and the Risk and Insurance Management Society. He received his BS in Business Management from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University and a Master's in Business Administration from George Mason University. Gentlemen, it's great having you on the podcast. I know you just finished a great presentation uh, that was well received on operationalizing risk appetite for non-financial companies. So my first question is if you could just summarize what that presentation was about. I will post on our site uh, a link to an article that was on the Sedgwick site that describes a little bit more about uh, the presentation. So Subhagya, if you could just begin with that. Sure. Um, you know, the risk appetite has been a very interesting concept. It has it's been around for a long time, but uh, it has not been, we don't have many instances where it has been used uh, or implemented appropriately. So we uh, wanted to do something for the non-financial companies because it's, there are financial companies that are a little easier because it's financial values, it's, uh, you know, you can calculate, it's a very more transparent, but the non-financial risks are not, they're lumpy, they're not, you know, you cannot model them, quantify them as easily. So there is a tremendous value of risk appetite if it's used the right way. So it's our job to, as risk professionals who have been around for a long time, to really share this, how to do this. I mean, obviously, this is one way of doing it, and uh, we want to share this 
with the participants here so that we can at least, you know, a lot of people are now saying this capitate is a hoax, it's, it's a meaningless statement, it's irrelevant, let's just not do this. To counter that, we want to be able to share some of these things that we are doing right now. So that's primarily what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I would just add that decision-making in non-financials is as important as it is in financial institutions. So while it may be easier, there may be more data in diversified financials or financial institutions, um, I think everybody can benefit from this if you can actually get it done well enough to inform decision-making and get management to recognize that connection between the ultimate performance and success of the company and the way this can contribute to the more effective management of risk. So with that in mind, one aspect that often influences project investments or investments in new products or in efficiencies is dictated by the chief executive officer or whoever's in charge of president. They have a pet project. How do you deal with the political whims of organizational leadership when it comes to implementing a system like this? So, to be very honest, you don't completely eliminate that risk. But what this does is that it helps. I mean, a lot of times the CEOs, they, you have to give them credit. If they, they are zeroing in on something, they probably have some reasons. But a lot of times it's not made explicit as to what those reasons are. With this model, at least we can help them really define what they're after. You know, uh, what is the reward they're going after? What is the what are the risks they're uh, they're acknowledging? And we can help them understand the risk profile better using this model. I believe strongly that um, most CEOs, call it CEO or even a frontline manager, they don't really come to work to make a bad decision. So if you show them the risk reward. Uh, portfolio spread between the risk and reward, I think they will still make the right decision. And I would add that, and I, I don't know if I made this comment during the session, but it was in my notes, and that is that no matter how many risk models you have, no matter how much data you have, no matter how much process rigor you have, you can't forget that common sense and gut feeling is often used to influence decision making. And at the end of the day, you know, a CEO appreciates hopefully the data inputs that we're talking about here and others, but at the end of the day, there may be other intangible reasons that will drive decision-making or at least influence it, and I'm okay with that. I think as long as we've done our part, and then they can make decisions any way they want. You know, we don't control that. So, great point, Chris. Just one other thing I want to add. You know, I, I feel risk management is like the GPS in your car. You know, did people go from point A to point B without a GPS? Yes, of course. But should we use GPS now, now that we have the technology with us? Of course. However, like Chris was pointing out, GPS doesn't always see the next pothole in front of you. Or it, it gives you different options, you know, the shortest route, the scenic route, toll gates, and this and that. And the driver still has to make a decision. And that's what the CEO is. You know, I think that was kind of Chris's point. So we can give them all the risk reward profile and all that. And finally, they may make a decision based on some of the intangibles, which is not part of the model. So, you know, no model, I mean, I completely agree with what Chris was saying. No model can substitute human 
judgment at the end of the day. That raises a very interesting contemporary question because we all know how as the driverless car issue is evolving, there's been some accidents. One of them not too long ago was a fatality, and it raised this question about does a car ever, will a driverless car ever succeed without a human driver in it, you know? Um, because in that particular case, I guess there were variables involved in the fact pattern that the artificial intelligence system built into the car just could not account for, and somebody died as a result. So on that note, when you, you mentioned those risk factors that cannot be quantified, we know that there are, are many of them. Uh, as an example, reputational risk is very hard to quantify specifically. How do you, how do you quantify that or how do you measure that uh, within you know, a risk appetite or op operationalizing the risk appetite? Yeah, so um, let's make sure that we, we are defining quantification appropriately. A lot of times people define quantification as how does a certain risk convert into dollars. I am in a different camp. I, I feel that uh, the quantification can be a score that is assigned based on certain criteria. So, so with regard to reputation risk, what we do is we first we define who the stakeholders are for the company. And then each project impacts the stakeholders differently. And then we have an idea about each particular stakeholders, what's their max hit that they can, we can cause and they will be okay with. So we define that and that's a collectively decided point. So that gets, for example, if we're looking at policymakers as a stakeholder, we try not to do some project which which was going to make their perception of New York Power Authority totally bad. So we have certain criteria that says that this is the max level of displeasure that we can cause to this stakeholder group. And that gets the highest score. And then we, 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 we step down from there and define uh, different stages in you know, the scoring scale. So one thing I want to follow up on regarding that is, you know, we recently had um, in the Northeast, and you know, you work for the New York Power Authority, so I would imagine that there were tremendous impacts to the power grid in certain areas that you managed. And uh, with that in mind, there were you know, perhaps certain disruptions that took place, and there are certain tolerances. Is that factored into what is the maximum tolerable downtime, as often referred to in IT, that you've quantified and said, okay, this is this is how long we can go offline with certain uh, power elements without disrupting things overall. So, um, to be honest, we haven't quite done that. We have our business continuity plans that triggers uh, when uh, something like this happens, right? Uh, emergency management business continuity plans. What we are talking about here with the risk appetite is about conscious risk taking with regard to what something that we are trying to do in addition to our regular business. So we have a regular business, then we obviously are accepting certain risks. Those are addressed by our insurance program, our business continuity program, emergency management, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so we do have those triggers defined as to, um, but with regard to reputation, what I have been trying to promote in my company is that reputation should be looked at as an asset 
which you can build up reputation over a period of time and that will come in handy when you have situations like this. Um, so that's how we, we play, or at least try to play with regard to reputation. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know, but I discovered years ago, there's actually an organization in New York called the Reputational Institute who specializes in trying to quantify the impact of different scenarios on organizations and you know it uses a stock company model to figure that out based on a fact pattern and various fact patterns. So there are ways you can get a fairly good uh, measurement scheme behind reputation, uh, which is what I was being asked to do when I was when I first discovered the institute. And then just as on the BC side, um, I, the last time I was practicing, we had very specific business continuity thresholds and limits and tolerances, you know, recovery time objectives and the like that were very, very important to that business model because of the nature of our transactions being centered on the uh, World Wide Web particularly. So in some sense, even though I told the group this morning that we didn't have a formal risk appetite strategy or framework, that in effect was a, was a version of it within that particular IT context. So sometimes, if I understand correctly, it's more implicit than explicit in terms of overall planning. It, it, it often is, but in that case, it was explicitly dictated within our business continuity strategy and plan. But um, I, I guess my point was not necessarily on as a risk appetite uh, or risk tolerance you know, measurement. More tolerances, but l less about specific risk appetite. Yeah. Okay. So I have another question on enterprise risk management. Enterprise risk management is sometimes looked at as the latest fad or unrealistic in terms of a concept. Uh, it fails in terms of it, its implementation or, you know, it's uh, some fairy tale, so to speak. How do you answer that claim? So um, I think the basic concept behind enterprise risk management is based around looking at the entire enterprise as a total portfolio. It borrowed the idea from a financial kind of a model, capital uh, uh, model, CAPM uh, theory, and say that, well, we can, we can probably there are built-in hedges within the company, the different business units having different risk profiles. If we aggregate them all and look at this, there could be some, some natural hedges that we can, we can uh, find out and uh, optimize the portfolio. So that is, that's truly the basic essence of enterprise risk management. That said, it's never been that easy to really do this because there are, you know, portfolio consists of um, different business units with different, like HR, for example, versus your supply chain management versus your operations management. They all have very distinct risk profiles and aggregation of those becomes a huge problem. And and when we don't do it right, what, what ends up happening is that the enterprise risk management team just ends up producing a bunch of heat maps. And uh, the CEO looks at that first couple of times, it sounds exciting, you know, red, yellow, green, and all that colorful charts. But then it becomes stale. And then what needs to happen is that you can, you, the risk team produces these heat maps and it, people look at it maybe for one second. It's never used in the decision-making process. That is the reason why we decided to really do this presentation today because we want to ensure that risk appetite is used as a part of decision-making process. You know, it enables the decision-making process. It's not going to be a substitute for uh, somebody's decision, but at least 
it can enable that and enhance the decision-making process. So that's… that's basically the reason. So if you don't do it right, obviously enterprise risk management is not going to be accepted widely. The other thing that I may point out and that I really feel that all the standards, the COSO and ISO 31000, they talk about all the things that you could do using your enterprise risk management program. We need to have more of how to do, not so much what to do. Uh, why everybody is very clear about what everybody knows uh, how, what to do, but how part is kind of missing in, in my mind. Yeah, that's why, you know, there, there have been implementation guides, some helpful, some not so helpful. Probably need uh, more of that, more refined versions of that. But, you know, I like to say ERM is nothing more than what risk management should have always been anyway. And it's not A to Z, you know, off the shelf in a box. It's what your company needs. It may mean, you know, it's three of a dozen components. It may mean eight. It doesn't matter. You know, it's what your company needs. And so just because you do risk appetite with, say, some kind of discipline doesn't mean you're doing ERM and vice versa. But they both are similar in that they both require support from the top. They need consistent uh, reinforcement. They need a mandate. Uh, and ultimately, they need to be a part of the culture. And if you can't make it a part of the culture, to get everybody kind of on that same page using things consistently for, for the same reasons, then, you know, both will fail. So uh, there's a lot of parallels between the two. Are there any other thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before we finish up the podcast? So I, um, I really think that um, risk management professionals today should really be mindful about adding value, real value to the business every day. Uh, if we think that we can continue to exist because of a mandate, I can assure uh, everybody in the audience that that mandate is going to, going to run out of, of time. Disappear. We've seen that happen to many of these other um, functions, total quality management, business process reengineering, and all that. ERM will end up becoming like that. So we have to be very mindful about how we add tangible value every day uh, so that the business really needs us as internal consultants, as uh, you know, help with analytics. And you know, I tell my team members that our role is to enhance enable and finally enforce discipline and decision making process so we 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 first priority is to how to how to enable the business units to make, think about it think the right way how to enhance the decision making process and finally you know in some cases if they cross the guardrails we still have to enforce yeah that's um, that's well put you know i always thought and believe and taught that you know, we ought to make everybody a little risk manager. I love, I have always used that phrase. Another one that I always thought was interesting was the, what some people thought of as a joke, but the idea that in the long run, if you do this discipline well, you're actually working yourself out of a job. In reality, you know, your job never goes away. But the truth is, if you do what, what you should, you may not need to have the risk leader at some point in the future. So, uh, you know, maybe that works against the grain. I don't know. Who wants to work themselves out of a job? Um, but it is, it is, it undergirds, I think, the right way to do things.
one question I do have is there's a future generation of risk managers that are out there. And what makes this job exciting for them? So I can tell about what excites me as a, as a person. You know, I think I have a finance, corporate finance background, uh, economics, corporate finance background. And um, I really feel that in risk management, I can apply everything that I learned in the business school with regard to decision making. Uh, you know, every decision is made today for a certain result expected in future. So therefore, every decision involves uncertainty. And every decision has risks around it. And if we do our job right, uh, we, if we make uh, risk management a piece of, uh, part of decision making, then we can not guarantee that every decision is going to yield good results, but more and more decisions will lead to more and more good results, good outcomes. So that's that's what continues to excite me. I just want to respond to Chris's comment about are we going to um, work, uh, if we do our job right, maybe we're going to make ourselves redundant, probably. But the idea is to really go to higher and higher level. There is no end to how you can you can uh, in, uh, improve your decision-making process. So we can continue to, you know, as we are digitizing, we can get much more savvy with regard to data, and so there is no end to where we can be. But yes, um, the the traditional heat map generating kind of function is probably going to get redundant very soon. Yeah, so a couple things occur to me. One is that I've always found no matter what kind of risk management I was practicing, it was really never a dull moment, you know? Tremendous diversity, you know, in terms of what you do, day to day, week to week, year to year. And so that's always been highly attractive to me. You know, you don't get bored. You don't get bored easily. The other thing is there is different ways in which it's practiced, you know, wherever you go. So you can actually decide what kind of risk management you want to practice where it, it, different versions of it are called for depending on what the company does, the industry that they're in, the priorities that they have. So it's not always so easy to find out from the outside what that is. But I, but I think, you know, if you want to get into and stick to and be a financial risk management expert, as so many are in the banking world or a commodity risk expert in the energy industry or whatever it is, you can narrow yourself that way or you can go broad. So I think the discipline lends itself to tremendous diversity and interest and, and uh, as I say, uh, always something interesting going on. Well, I want to thank you both uh, tremendously for coming on the podcast today and uh, for speaking to the topic on risk appetite and enterprise risk management. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew. And I also want to mention we're uh, recording this at the Risk Insurance Management Society, or actually Risk Management Society, uh, conference in 2018 here in San Antonio. I encourage our listeners to go to the RIMS.org site and to explore RIMS and what it offers. It's a great organization. Both Subhagya and Chris are certainly in senior leadership uh, positions within the organization. 
The conference has been great. We have, as you know, a, an Enterprise Risk Management Master's in Science program that we are rolling out. Chris happens to be an instructor. I hope to have uh, Subhagia as a guest lecturer sometime, perhaps as a faculty member. So keep a watch out for what we're doing, webinars that are out there, continue to listen to the podcast, and uh, I wish you all well. Find out more about our programs, including our MS in Enterprise Risk Management, at our website, www.yu.edu forward slash K-A-T-Z or CATS. We would like to hear your feedback on our podcasts, so please send us any questions or comments to us at catspodcast, K-A-T-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at yu.edu. Thanks for listening.